0: There are signs of hope that the environment is improving for people with pain and the professionals who treat them. I'm Mike Barnes. I'm an attorney practicing in Washington, D.C. My firm is DCBA Law and Policy, and we provide health care counsel to healthcare providers and treatment programs. Uh, we also um, work in the policy space, and I'll be talking largely today about much of the policy that's occurring I- at the federal and state levels. And... Um, discuss some trends, Uh, and overall I do believe that there are signs of hope that the environment is improving for people with pain and the professionals who treat them. Uh, I will be providing some input based on uh, the experience that I have in providing compliance counsel to healthcare providers, including the uh, individuals who treat people with pain using controlled medications, the individuals who treat people with opioid use disorder using opioid medications as well, So I will touch on some of the policies that will affect people with pain and their healthcare providers, but also people with opioid use disorder and the individuals who treat them as well. So we'll start with the biggest law coming out of Congress. Last year in October, on the 24th of October, 2018, the president signed into law the Support Act, and it had a number of provisions that are largely related to opioid pain medications and uh, some of the provisions related to treatment for opioid use disorder. So the Support Act clarified that uh, the FDA is required to have a public meeting related to non-addictive treatments for acute or chronic pain or addiction. That meeting will be taking place on September 17th, just in about, what, 11 days. It it also uh, clarified that the FDA can provide in the labeling uh, information related to opioid tolerance, dose escalation, and that HHS must provide input to pharmacists on when they may decline a prescription for a controlled medication. Additionally, the uh, CMS will be holding a meeting on September 20th. Uh, CMS is the one that uh, develops the policies for Medicare, and they will be seeking input on uh, uh how they as an agency can help to prevent and provide treatment for opioid addiction and they have to report to Congress by January 1st of next year as to what they will do using their authorities not to contribute to opioid use disorder but instead to contribute to the prevention and treatment of opioid use disorder. The uh, law also requires that there be a technical expert panel to provide recommendations on re- reducing opioid use in surgical settings. And what's interesting is if you look at each of these provisions, we could probably trace back to which lobbyists got the provision into the law itself. There is still a lot of action related to uh, trying to get uh, you know, the provisions into law that are related to a specific type of product or a, s- a specific uh, field of practitioners. Uh, It is much less prevalent now in this environment where many of the opioid manufacturers are in a very defensive space, but it is still possible in looking at legislation like this to be able to trace back which lobbyists actually uh, supported and got the inclusion of a specific specific provision in the law. The Support Act also required that the FDA issue guidelines on prescribing opioid analgesics for acute pain So this is the process that really should have been taken years ago when the CDC provided its guidance related to chronic pain. There was a lot of controversy around the process that the CDC took in developing and issuing that guidance. Well, Congress has clarified that FDA should be doing the next iteration as it relates to acute pain. And so the FDA is working with the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, to develop these guide, uh, this, this guidance on a, acute pain uh, using, treating acute pain using opioid analgesics. Another thing that came out of the Support Act was a, a amendment to the REMS provision of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. REMS are risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. And uh, the effect of this is that Congress weighed in as it relates to drug disposal, but also packaging. So I think it, uh, as practitioners, you can expect to see that there will be blister packs made available soon for people with uh, acute pain so that they can get three, five or seven day uh, durations of their medications uh, if they're prescribed uh, opioid pain relievers. So that uh, I think will be coming out by the time we come back to Pain Week next year. And uh, so the citations for each of these um, are available. I'm going to try to speed through some of these uh, discussions because I do want to make sure that we have an opportunity for uh, discussion of questions and uh, a little bit of interactive feedback on these topics that affect the work that you do as pain treatment providers. Federal bills, uh, there's still a lot of action in Congress around opioids broadly. So we see that manifested in bills like the one uh, proposed by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Mike Braun, of indiana to bipartisan uh, members um, coming together to propose legislation that would clarify that opioids are not intended for the treatment of chronic pain Uh, and i love this headline because we see this in another one that i'll show you this is sort of consistent with what i've proposed in in this presentation session that you've got two senators with business degrees who are trying to tell the experts at fda who are the ones with the medical scientific educations how they should or should not label their drugs, uh, in this case, for the treatment of individuals with chronic pain. So that's, uh, I think, a big part of what we've seen in opioid policy up to this time. People who really are, had been having knee-jerk reactions to overdose deaths in their communities, two-thirds of which currently we know are related to illicit substances, they wanted to do something about it. You can't blame them for it. But They've made uh, actions that have had unintended consequences, and this is the type of thing that uh, supports those unintended consequences. Senator Portman of Ohio, love this headline as well, presumes to know how many days of pain relief all 328 million Americans need. Uh, so he's proposing a national three-day limit on opioids after surgeries. And again, you know the whole uh, discussion now of opioids in surgical settings is led by the companies that offer non-opioid treatments for surgeries. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see how they are successful in their lobbying efforts. So big picture is that despite the fact that we know now that two-thirds of the overdose deaths are related to illicit substances, there's a continuing focus at the federal level and at the state levels on prescription opioid pain relievers. This is despite the fact that there's already been a 25 to 29% reduction in the number of opioids dispensed and uh, that communities now in at least 29 states have seen that um, individuals have died of overdoses related to counterfeit opioid pills that are available on the black market that are laced with fentanyl. So the black market for substances that would otherwise treat pain or address the symptoms of someone's untreated opioid use disorder, right? That is a thriving market that policymakers really are not addressing adequately. There has been some work around supply reduction, looking to the role of customs and border protection related to border seizures. There has been some focus on the mail facilities and trying to ensure that illicit substances don't come in through the mail services like U.S. Postal Services or FedEx or UPS, but by and large, the federal government is still focusing on the access to uh, pain medications, opioid pain relievers, with the goal of cutting opioid dispensing by an additional one-third by 2021. Right? And so what this means is that the government is indiscriminately saying, we're going to make sure that there are fewer opioids available on the market, available to consumers, available to patients, but what they're not doing is making sure that the right people are getting them and the wrong people are not getting them. They're, they're being indiscriminate. And that's why we see that, as a, unintended consequences of policies to date, people who need medications, in many instances, are saying that they cannot get them. So we hear now in the world of healthcare a lot of discussion related to diseases of despair, right? Obesity, addiction. Uh, I think uh, you um, understand what people are saying when they're discussing um, the types of conditions, diabetes, for example, that that, um, affect communities where there is a heavy amount of economic uh, depression, uh, lack of opportunity, isolation in those sorts of communities. And we hear discussions uh, also related to the social determinants of health. But both of those concepts have not been incorporated into the federal government's opioid-related policy. In other words, the federal government really is not looking at demand reduction. In drug policy, we sort of see things as uh, it relates to supply reduction or demand reduction. And really what I've seen is that at the federal level, the demand reduction efforts are like the ambulance at the bottom of the hill versus having put a guardrail at the top of the hill with trying to uh, prevent people from getting into the condition of having the need for treatment. So the federal government's focusing on treatment as a demand uh, reduction initiative versus actually reducing the illicit use or the, the inappropriate use of the substances in the first place so you don't even need the treatment. So the prevention... And the policies related to addressing these these diseases of despair, the social isolation, the cultural disconnectedness, and these other social determinants of health, that is lacking from opioid policy right now. So we're seeing uh, still proposals like uh, the one from uh, Florida that just became law July 1st. Uh, Is anyone here from Florida? Okay. Uh, Do you prescribe uh, opioid medications? Okay, well, are you handing out the pamphlet now? Yes, okay, so you now if you prescribe opioid medications in Florida, you have to hand out a pamphlet about alternatives to opioid pain relievers. Um, Don't know whether that's really going to prevent, but at least it is an effort uh, to prevent the onset of opioid use disorder So that sort of demand reduction effort that is otherwise lacking. There are a lot better ways that governments could be focusing on demand reduction. U.S. attorneys issue warnings to opioid prescribers. This is where the the attorneys now, not the physicians, not the healthcare providers who are licensed and registered to prescribe medications, uh, but the, the attorneys now are going in and looking at raw data available to the federal government through prescription monitoring programs and other databases, and they're finding the outlier prescribers and sending them threatening letters. The letters are basically saying that uh, you are an outlier, and you might want to consider adjusting your prescribing habits. Who wouldn't adjust prescribing habits after getting one of those letters from your federal prosecutor, right? Um what is so basic that someone with a legal education who can pass a bar exam should know is that in medicine the highest prescribers are typically in this environment these days the ones who are the specialists the ones who see the hardest cases the ones that patients go to because they're the only ones left in the communities who are willing and brave enough to prescribe these medications when they're medically necessary right uh... and so This is having a significant impact on the willingness of healthcare providers to prescribe medications when they are medically necessary, and we'll talk about uh, some of the impacts that that's having both on the patients, but also on these prescribers as it relates to their, again, indiscriminate tapering of individuals off of medications. There are a number of federal task forces, again, led out of the Department of Justice, that are doing similar sorts of things and really being aggressive about their investigations as well as their crackdown on individuals who are prescribing opioid medications. And that includes, by the way, crackdowns on the prescribers of medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder. So the prescribers of buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, for example, are being rated by the DEA as though they were pill mills that existed in Florida in the year 2010, right? And and so, again, we've got cops and attorneys who are not recognizing that the scientific medical literature suggests that there isn't a significant demand for buprenorphine for opioid use disorder on the black market other than for people who are already dependent on opioids with opioid use disorder Uh, and that the the willful uh, abuse of those uh, medications of buprenorphine for opioid use disorder is not common. It is that the individuals who are getting them from the black market are oftentimes those who are not able to access treatment through the medical system. So this, uh, uh, the concern relating to the diversion of buprenorphine for opioid use disorder is quite different from the concern related to the diversion of opioid pain relievers, but they're being treated exactly the same by law enforcement and prosecutors. So, in light of this, because I don't wanna just on a Friday morning at uh, 7 a.m. scare you about the work that you're doing, uh, when you all are the diligent ones who are here at 7 a.m. on a Friday, uh, I just wanna remind you that you can empower yourselves to know better than the attorneys and the prosecutors and the lawmakers, and that you can actually steel yourselves, you can prepare yourselves to defend if it ever were to become necessary. So, looking at the standard of care, ultimately, you know, the, um, the standard of care is drawn from the medical scientific literature. Uh, it can be supported. It can be affected by guidelines, for example, uh, the, F- up, up the, the FDA guideline on acute pain that will be coming out. Um, but ultimately, it boils down to the experts in a case, right, who has a medical, better medical, more convincing medical expert in a defense case, right, And so what I recommend when I am providing advice to healthcare providers who prescribe controlled medications is that for every factual circumstance that you have when you're making a decision, just like we do in the law, you apply the facts and the law and make sure that they match up. Make sure that your facts match up to something that can be identified or cited in the medical scientific literature, right? So if you're here learning today about how to treat a particular type of condition or a particular type of patient, one of those shows up in your office. Make sure that you note the facts in the record that show that, all right, these rules apply when we have these sorts of factual scenarios, right? So when the the individual presents and has these uh, uh, conditions, then we know that the medical scientific literature says this, and this is how I'm going to treat the person. So just know, you don't have to document that particular medical scientific reference in in your record, but certainly know that if it ever were necessary, you have the facts adequate in your record to remember that case, that individual's unique story, and to be able then to say, in this circumstance, this individual with this condition is treated in this way, look, here's the medical scientific literature to prove it. And that gives you the better expert in a case in the event that there is a case against you as a prescriber of controlled medications so that you prove that you have complied with the standard of care. So standard for prescribing controlled medications, of course, legitimate medical need, reasonable steps to prevent harm, ordinary course of professional practice, and thorough documentation if you'd like to read more about our recommendations related to the standard of care. We've got the citation for an article that I did in Pain Week Journal a couple of years ago. So we do recommend also that uh, anyone who is uh, part of a practice where any controlled medication prescribing is common, that you have a a compliance plan Uh, and certainly make sure that you work. With experienced healthcare legal counsel, because things are changing rapidly, not just as it relates to the laws and regulations, but also related to the case law. You want to have written policies, and you want to provide training to staff on those policies, right? So the types of things that you learn at pain week, you want to make sure that the people with whom you practice are also able to learn and incorporate into their daily activity. (coughs) Excuse me. And so... Uh, One of the most important uh, examples that I can provide related to the benefits of training for your staff is that uh, an individual I met here at Pain Week a couple of years ago, uh, who's the medical director of a pain clinic, did have training for his staff related to the testing uh, for individuals uh, using urine drug testing. Um, for compliance with their uh, treatment plan, but also any sort of illicit use of uh, substances. And in the course of that training, two of the prescribers of opioid pain relievers came to recognize that 6MAM that was showing up in their patient's UDT results was actually the heroin metabolite. And they hadn't, for whatever number of months or years they had been prescribing in that practice, they hadn't recognized that they were seeing results that showed that their patients were using heroin and they were still prescribing controlled medications to those individuals without addressing the heroin use. Right, So that to me is a major risk to that um, medical practice to the medical director and to the individuals who are doing the prescribing. And it was an hour long, maybe two hour long webinar that they went through that enabled them to identify that shortcoming in their practice and address it aggressively the very next day. So you obviously want to monitor staff as well, make sure that you're continuing to improve the quality, and then document all medical decisions. And really, this relates to any area of medical practice. So uh, just as we think about the uh, uh, questions that uh, we put together uh, for uh, pain week, uh, the items that should be a part of the compliance plan, all of these items should be a part of your compliance plan. Another thing in this environment of federal government crackdown, is know your rights. I cannot express this enough, uh, how frustrating it is to learn after the fact from individuals who surrendered their controlled substance registrations, the the circumstances under which they did so, and it's largely bullying. So the DEA comes in, in a routine administrative inspection, finds something that might or might not be problematic, and effectively threatens the prescriber into surrendering, surrendering his or her controlled substance registration for no benefit, by the way, to that prescriber, because there's not a promise not to prosecute. There's no benefit. Uh, but people are doing this because they're scared, and they're scared because of the intentional bullying types of efforts from some of these agents. Not all of the agents at the DEA are unprofessional, but some of them are. And so, our recommendation is of course, work always with uh, experienced healthcare legal counsel, but also know your rights and be able to on the fly recall well enough that if you're ever going to consider con- surrendering your controlled substance registration, make sure that you've consulted legal counsel because you were never expected under the law to do that. On site without any sort of um, due process. You have the right to go through uh, the procedural process under law so that uh, you can defend yourself before being forced to surrender your registration, right? So, this is an example where it's important that you know your rights and be able then to assess whether there's a benefit to me legally to. Doing what is being asked of me. And certainly that means, at the very least, knowing when to call your experienced healthcare legal counsel. <clears throat> so, to reinforce that, is there ever a scenario when you would be asked uh, and required to surrender your registration without due process? No. You have the rights to due process, and that you can go through an administrative proceeding before being expected to surrender a registration. And I'm you know, sorry that we have to go through this, um, but this is the environment that people who um, treat individuals with pain, if they're willing to prescribe controlled medications at this point, um, are living in, right? And so um, you all are here learning the best practices, learning how to do things right, and we wanna make sure that uh, you are not bullied into not treating the people uh, who need your assistance. Yes, sir. All right, so uh, the question is, if the DEA says we want you to surrender your registration, whether you immediately have to stop prescribing until you've gone through that administrative process. Well, if we look at you know, the, the table that we put together here related to your rights, you can look at the type of document that you would receive right, from the uh, DEA. And if it's just an you know, oral request at an administrative inspection that you surrender your registration, you can say no and continue prescribing because you haven't gone through your procedural process uh, for them to be able to take away any of your right to prescribe under federal law. And so you should know the difference and actually read what it is that they're presenting and make sure that what they're presenting is you know, appropriately documented uh, for what they're expecting you to do. All right, so, so you know, needless to say, Uh, In this environment, a lot of people have dropped out and are not willing to treat individuals who have pain whose needs require uh, controlled opioid medications. Uh, But assuming that you all are here because you want to be able to have all the tools available to uh, treat individuals with pain, I want for this session really to empower you to make sure that you feel confident that you know that you are doing the right thing and that you cannot be bullied into not providing appropriate individualized care for your patients. So in the meantime, though, what uh, my colleagues and I are doing in D.C. is trying to raise awareness of this uh, injustice, of the inappropriate policy, and propose reform. So one of those came out in the Washington College of Law's um, journal just a couple of months ago by American University, proposal that um, went into how some of the best Physicians in America have been raided, really, on fact-finding missions and nearly had their reputations and careers entirely destroyed. But The the DEA then did nothing and, in one case, three years later, gave them the courtesy of saying, we're not going to prosecute. Well, in one instance, uh, the owner that I know of who had um, seven opioid use disorder clinics across four states after being raided by the DEA, not even having been subject to criminal charges, was effectively forced to sell his business, not able to get a job, uh, driving Uber now, um, but he has still not been even charged with a federal crime. Unfortunately, a year and a half later, the prosecutor is not willing to give him the courtesy of saying, okay, we use this as a fact-finding mission. We didn't find facts that suggest that you are... uh, Worthy of uh, being prosecuted, and so we're going to let this go. Um, there, it's lingering on. And so, my proposal is: don't allow the DEA to do that. Don't allow state uh, law enforcement to do that either, either without there having been an appropriate referral from a licensing board, right? And people say, well, licensing boards allowed this to happen. Well, so did law enforcement, right? So if we're going to make improvements, let's make improvements so that licensing boards can do a better job at actually assessing whether or not a a, prescription uh, or prescribing practices were appropriate. And then if they believe that there's criminal behavior, then allow them then to refer the matter to law enforcement. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, that is that is one of the cases that I um, uh, analyzed in this article. But my proposal would work if they if the DEA had been required to have a licensing board referral saying we've uh, investigated and we believe that there is criminal activity that you should investigate, then he would be safe and still practicing and serving the patients who need his help. All right. Yes. Yes. And. I, I, um, th- that is an area that is in uh, significant need of reform. Unfortunately, very few people are talking about that need for reform. Yes. We no, we don't care about them. Okay, so that that was related to your X waiver, or was that in, in, in the X waiver? Yeah, uh, I, I think I I don't know off the top of my head whether. There's a due process right in that regard. I'm pretty sure there is. Uh, And that's one of those things where I would say you say, okay, fine, I'll stop until I've spoken to legal counsel. Right. And then you speak with legal counsel and get that opinion as to whether or not you're being bullied or whether there is a real justification in law for them to require you to do so. Yeah, and they're still doing that nine years later, uh, and they're still using those very same uh, tactics. Um, So one of the things that I'm doing uh, in coordination with a not-for-profit organization, uh, a university, and a foundation uh, is to help prescribers prescribe safely, of course, but then feel safe prescribing safely as well, Uh, and that's the Prescriber Safety Initiative. There's more information on that at prescribersafety.org. Uh, So we are seeing now that there's pushback, right? So this is the sign of hope that the environment is improving for people with pain and those who provide their treatment. Um, We're seeing that there is, again, I can't identify exactly who's doing it, but somebody is funding a significant push in the news media uh, to discuss the other side of the opioid overdose crisis and uh, discussing the needs of people with pain. All right, so, we're starting to see headlines talking about the individuals who need access to appropriate pain relief. Uh, some of the biggest, um, over the past year, the biggest developments include a number of professional organizations that came together and said, you know, let's get the politicians out of our healthcare. And then 300, uh, or actually more than 300, healthcare providers and three former drug czars who called on the CDC to stop inappropriately applying the CDC guideline to scenarios that aren't even addressed in the guideline, uh, and to clarify that the guideline had been too widely interpreted by insurance companies and by enforcement entities. And from there, the FDA came out and said yes, you uh, can put your patient at risk by suddenly discontinuing opioid pain relievers. And uh, then within a month, the CDC finally issued the clarification that individuals have been asking for, uh, saying that you know we're not putting hard limits on the prescribing of opioids for pain, and we're not saying that people should be tapered off unless they uh, you know, have a problem that you've identified and documented. Um, and it and wasn't necessarily a, a hard push by the CDC by any means, but it certainly enables others now to point to that uh, when they're, for example, trying to push back against insurers who are saying, well, we're applying the CDC guideline broadly, uh, irrespective of the individual needs of this particular patient. Uh, And then looking back, uh, you're able to say, well, well, the CDC has made it very clear and, in fact, express that this is not the appropriate application of the CDC guideline. The Pain Management Best Practices Interagency Task Force released its report Uh, In that process, uh, people with pain got a really great advocate uh, in Dr. Vanilla Singh who has left HHS. She led that task force. If if you're on Twitter, I would urge you to follow her on Twitter because uh, she really has become one of the greatest voices uh, to speak up for individuals with pain and those who uh, provide treatment to them. The report really focused heavily on multidisciplinary approaches to pain relief, which is great. I mean, I think that's why all of you are here. Uh, And from that, We see now that uh, Senator Bill Cassidy, uh, a physician uh, who's a Republican from Louisiana in the U.S. Senate, he last week sent a letter to the DEA asking them questions regarding what they are telling prescribers uh, related to the CDC guideline or other restrictions on the prescribing of opioids for pain relief and then how the DEA is going to follow the recommendations of the task force. So, this is big. You know, the a US Senator physician is saying to the DEA, wait a second, what are you doing to contribute to this crisis of individuals who are not getting treatments for pain, might be relegated to the black market where they might get pills that are uh, um, contaminated with fentanyl, or they otherwise might be a part of the suicide epidemic that we also have in the United States, right? And so, this is again a sign of hope that things are improving. Uh, US Senate um, committee. Uh, The Help Committee is going to be focusing this fall on individuals who are denied pain relief uh, as part of the knee-jerk reaction policy uh, that we've seen in response to uh, opioid overdoses. And so this is a a news story that came out um, June 3rd, I think, Uh, yeah, June 3rd of this year. And uh, it's by a reporter uh, who's with Fox News who's been doing a lot of good reporting on the needs of people with pain And uh, it's a mainstream news source that is reaching a number of people who might otherwise not get this perspective. And so I think it's a really great thing that a Fox News reporter is talking about this particular perspective. Uh, And there's a a new service that I wanna make you aware of, uh, assuming that uh, you all are interested in legislation and regulation by your presence here, you're interested in policy, you certainly know of the effect that media coverage can have on policy. Well, there's a new tool that uh, enables you to push back on media stories that might be biased or lack credibility. It's called uh, creditor, and it's really like the rotten tomatoes for news coverage, right? And so if you see a news story that is biased or it's based on uh, erroneous facts or otherwise not credible, you can go to this site, type in uh, or paste a link to the news story that you want to critique, and then you can provide your rating of that news story. I can't tell you how empowered I feel uh, and and how useful this is, frankly, in the policy work that I do. We know uh, journalists all the time who do hit pieces. So we've already started putting out interns to rank those uh, uh, journalists who have made a career out of doing hit pieces on individuals that might not be you know, that are not based in fact, but are instead activist journalism, and so those activist journalists who are doing hit pieces or otherwise not objectively creating uh, news that uh, you know re- reflects real journalism, they've got ratings of six percent, you know, on what like a like a Rotten tomato scale, right? Uh, and so I'm hoping that this takes off, and that you'll see instead of having you know Facebook or Google or Yahoo be the gatekeeper of what is credible, what is real news, what is not. Consumers can do that, and that those outlets, those platforms, would use consumer rankings to identify what is credible. And so uh, with no interest at all, you know, besides just wanting to see this thrive, I would encourage you to check it out. It's very empowering from my perspective. So um, looking at uh, another uh, state law now, uh, we've got the Massachusetts CARE Act. Uh, And this was a uh, law that came out in the fall of, I guess it was uh, uh, 2018, and uh, again, looking at um, ways to undo the negative consequences of initial opioid policy. Uh, And so uh, that include, for example, um, uh, uh, pain-related provisions to uh, provide remote consultations. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Project ECHO, uh, but it's these remote consultations to people who are uh, not specialists, but who want to be able to provide care for people with pain. So they would have the specialist be able to consult with the non-specialist to provide them input on either difficult cases or otherwise provide them coaching and training. So that's an example. Uh, a number of other provisions under uh, this particular uh, um, state law that uh, you might want to consider if you're from Massachusetts um, Oregon has dropped its opioid tapering plan, so another thing that at the state level that is uh, proof that there is hope for people with pain. And then this is what I think um, all of you should focus on. This is out of New Hampshire. The headline makes it sound like the doctor was reprimanded for treating a person with pain, but it's really mistreating the person with pain. Uh, so this is where the uh, doctor suddenly reduced an individual's opioid analgesic uh, prescription after having treated him for four years and um, the individual didn't have adequate pain relief as a result. So he went back to the physician and said, I'm you know, not feeling good about this. And then ultimately the physician said, well, I'm just not going to treat you. And he, he uh, reported the patient also to the police. Well, the medical board said, wait a second, you misapplied the CDC guideline in that sudden reduction of the individual who had been stable for years on your treatment plan, and then you violated your Medical Practice Act as well. And so they reprimanded this physician. And I I see this as a very positive sign that at least the New Hampshire Licensing Board has recognized that either by fear or ignorance or otherwise, uh, people have taken – the response to the overdose crisis to an extreme, and it's harming patients. And so they are starting now to push back and make sure that there's not a lazy interpretation of the guidelines that are out there. If you're gonna cite and rely on a guideline, make sure that you're doing so accurately. And that's what the uh, medical board in New Hampshire said. Uh, I wanna also discuss um, what's happening at a big picture level because this could impact all of your practices in a way that no one is talking about at at the federal level, except at least my firm is. Um, We did an article for the American Bar Association's uh, Health Journal uh, about the potential impact of this litigation related to the Affordable Care Act that's in the federal courts now, where the uh, Trump administration is trying to uh, have the Affordable Care Act invalidated by the courts in in its entirety. And if that were successful, uh, it would initially only be in one judicial circuit, but it could wind up going to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court agreed with the rationale that uh, is being argued now that the ACA is invalid, what that would mean is an immediate reversion to pre-ACA law, right? And so that means essential health benefits like prescription drug coverage that are provided by the Affordable Care Act, Uh, The uh, expansion of parity to Medicaid and to small business and individual health plans that uh, exists under the Affordable Care Act, that would uh, disappear as a federal protection. Um, Pre-existing conditions, uh, not being able to charge more for an individual based on uh, pre-existing conditions, again, a protection under the ACA, that would disappear. So regardless of what you think about the Affordable Care Act, there are patient protections in there that are very important to the individuals who have garnered access, new uh, access to health insurance through the law. And if that law just goes away, it could create chaos in the states that have not set up their own system. Many states have set up sort of equivalent patient protections so that their uh, residents and patients would not be as badly affected as some of those in the states that uh, haven't implemented similar types of protections for patients. So what this means is that if this were to occur at the federal level and the ACA were invalidated, a lot of people would find themselves without access to meaningful health insurance, and that would impact your practices significantly. And um, regardless of what do you think about the ACA, that is a matter of fact. All right. So in this question, uh, could people wind up without uh, insurance options available to them? Yes, if this goes through the courts and the ACA is invalidated. A couple of other trends that I just want to make sure that you're aware as we talk about opioid-related policy, and then we'll get to a discussion, is that federal funding is finally getting out to communities, so you see a lot of organizations, most of them the drug abuse prevention and treatment organizations, that are finally getting the the money flowing into their communities. So you see a lot of things like warm handoff and mobile medical services programs. So New Jersey, for example, is now implementing a program that uh, was permitted Under federal law late last year that allows paramedics to, in an emergency, prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. So say a person refuses to go to an ED after uh, an overdose rescue, person gets naloxone. Well, uh, in New Jersey now, where they're taking advantage of this federal law that allows paramedics to provide emergency treatment for opioid use disorder, individuals would be able at least to get a short-term dose of buprenorphine for opioid use disorder uh, from the paramedic with the consent of the medical director just by radio Uh, and i think that's uh, pretty important and a a big uh, development especially in light of the work that we do with uh, law enforcement and even emergency department um, professionals where there's a lot of burnout worry and concern related to the individuals who are the revolving door overdose survivors thankfully due to naloxone policies, these individuals are surviving, but then they are currently being released without treatment and uh, active addiction and at risk for subsequent repeat overdose. So the warm handoff programs with the federal money now are putting recovery specialists into emergency departments so those peers in recovery can coach an individual who has an active opioid use disorder to consider getting treatment uh, and not just releasing that person back into the community in active withdrawal, where the risk for overdose is greater than even before. So the peer recovery support services are now starting to take off in local communities for individuals with opioid use disorder, again, as a result of federal funding. I've already talked about the fentanyl-laced substances, but for people who have active opioid use disorder or under or untreated pain, the risk of those pills that are tainted with illicit fentanyl uh, continues to grow because of the illicit market uh, and the, the new you know, packaging, so to speak, uh, or the new formulation, so to speak, of these illicit, illicit uh, products. The border seizures, as a result, of course, are a focus of the federal government. That's a good thing. That's supply reduction. It's uh, unfortunately not appropriately balanced out by demand reduction. And then a lot of criminal justice programs as well, Uh, We're in a unique scenario in the United States where the far right and the far left have come together on an issue. And we're actually seeing something happen around that issue. So the Soros Foundation, along with the Koch brothers, have come together around uh, um, criminal justice reform. And so we saw that the president signed into law criminal justice reform legislation last year, and that's uh, starting to take effect. Part of that movement now, as it relates to the overdose epidemic, is to provide... Treatment for individuals uh, who are in jails who have mental health and substance use disorders provide re-entry support, helping them get housing and other protections when they're leaving jail and returning to their communities. And then even pre-arrest diversion programs, which I think are fantastic. So if an individual is caught up in a substance-related uh, small crime misdemeanor, uh, the police have the discretion to divert that individual to treatment rather than taking that person for booking and uh, then to jail. And so what I see that does is it reduces the likelihood that an individual would be put into jail, even for booking, uh, with an active addiction or with an active uh, untreated mental illness, causing a harm to the individual, to other inmates, as well as to the correctional staff. This is a way to avoid, uh, avoid all of that, plus avoid the uh, arrest record, Uh, and all in all, I think a a, a, a program that will prove to be effective as it relates to outcomes but also cost savings. Uh, So, again, uh, somewhat tangential, I think, to the work that you do, but given that uh, in the work that you do, you need to be aware of all things that are related to opioid abuse and responses thereto. I would like to make sure that you're aware of those. Uh, So you all got the Pain Week Journal uh, when you registered for... Uh, Pain Week, Uh, and I I have uh, an article in the Pain Week Journal that uh, sort of puts into writing much of what we've discussed today. In that article, I also address what we're seeing coming out of some courthouses. Uh, There's obviously a lot happening around the uh, U.S. related to the opioid litigation. Uh, That's certainly a a touchy subject, not one that we have time to discuss today, but we are seeing that in the context of the litigation and looking at who's responsible for this problem and how we fix it, some uh, judges are taking alternative um, uh, points of view uh, that uh, certainly are worthy uh, of your um, at least you know, paying attention to and knowing that they exist. So I would encourage you to read the Pain Week Journal article. It's pretty short. It's an opinion piece, uh, and um, it's uh, you'll get a little bit more information than uh, what I was able to provide uh, here. So I'd be happy to take questions. Uh, maybe, uh, discuss whatever you're interested in. Uh, does anybody have anything? Like, Dr. Stoffer. It was a great talk. Thank you. Uh, questions. Two questions.
1: Can you comment on what percent of the? Oh, thank you. Can you comment on what percent of the DEA you think is kind of the G-men going after prescribers and the good guys versus the percent of DEA? Gone after the narcos and the bad guys because it just seems like bullies, using your term, prey on the weak. Everyone in here is not weak, but when when you don't carry a gun and you can't shoot back at a guy who's demanding your thing, they they look at you as weak. Versus a narco with an AR, you you might not chase that guy as hard. So I'm just kind of curious because it seems as if to me, the the whole prescription opioid abuse thing clearly there was fault on all sides, ours included. We did it at Hopkins. We're all guilty. Maybe maybe not all, but it seems that no one talks about what the DEA has kind of fallen down on as well. You know, Chinese carfentanil and Mexican fentanyl's kill more people now, right? right? So I'd kind of like to know what, what, if any, you can describe of their percent of their, you know, assets, because they have to choose who they pick on. Right, right. I'm just kind of uh, curious. Can you just-
0: I don't know that we would be able to, you know, maybe we could, you know, through a a FOIA request, figure out what allocation of resources would go to the illicit uh, market versus the market for diverted, controlled prescription medications. But as it relates to the uh, attention that is uh, provided by the attorney general, uh, the news media that uh, the DEA uh, seeks and gets related to its efforts to respond to overdose uh, all of the action is around prescribers and healthcare providers. The, the DOJ more broadly, even more broadly than the DEA, is bringing in the FBI. Uh, we've got HHS Inspector General. We've got the FDA now coming in on these matters uh, as well, trying to throw all the possible federal resources against these entities that the DOJ deems to be uh, committing wrongful behavior even before the medical or other licensing board has an opportunity to weigh in. Uh, And so um, I I do know that there is a heavy focus federally on border seizures, but that's not DEA. That's the Customs and Border Protection. Uh, And so I am not seeing a surge, like there has been a surge in the DOJ related to the prescribers and enforcing law against rogue prescribers. I've not seen in, in action or in media coverage or policy statements, a similar surge as it relates to the illicit markets uh, besides some negotiation with China. There's been some negotiation with China in getting the Chinese government to actually change its law related to the illicit substances like the carfentanil and then actually follow those changes in law. Um, but uh, on a whole, there's no discussion, really, of what the DEA is doing as it relates to the uh, illicit um, black markets and the, the uh, drug uh, cartels, uh, because I don't know that they're necessarily doing much different than they always have in that regard. I don't think there's been a surge in that regard.
1: I, think, I mean, It's what I suspected, a follow-up question. And I think a FOIA request and you know transparency into the deep state of that would probably be helpful. Related to September 17th at the FDA, could you comment on – um, where you think it's going in terms of the citizens' petition from Ralph Nader and the gang, you know, putting a moratorium on on, on opioid. I think it's opioid drug development, basically, approve no more. I think right. that's kind of the. Could you comment on that?
0: Yes. Yeah, so there's been a citizen petition that there be no more approvals of opioids uh, until what was it, until what? Uh, forever. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, until something. Yeah. I think it's until long term studies or, or something yeah. uh, yield results. Uh, And I think uh, under normal circumstances a couple of years ago, the FDA would have just ignored that, uh, as as it should, because the FDA relies on medical scientific uh, evidence in order to make its decisions. Uh, But I think now politically, uh, even if they don't have a pronounced uh, policy uh, as it relates to um, the approval of opioids or non-approval of opioids, that it's going to be harder. I think we already know that there will be more... um, uh, advisory board meetings called and that uh, there's going to be a harder standard. So I, I think that informally, the FDA is going to feel free to drag its feet on the approvals of new opioid pain relievers. And uh, you know, there's already the policy that the FDA has come out with and, and saying you have now to uh, to report what Uh, benefits there are to your uh, uh, product that relate to abuse deterrence or other sorts of methods of uh, deterring uh, harmful consequences of the use of the substance. So um, uh, I think that uh, they might not formally adopt or respond to this citizen petition, but uh, in practice, uh, they're going to continue to make it harder to get these medications on the market. Uh, And the market itself, I think, is uh, with the litigation response and all, making it hard for these um, manufacturers and distributors to continue uh, making these products available. Good answer. Thank you. So we're talking about opioids a lot, which is important, but there are a number of non-opioid pain treatments that, that are currently in development yes. um, with different mechanisms, um, more selective sodium channel blockers and GF. Uh, inhibitors and so i'm wondering what do you, what do you think are the chances that there's like a top down policy mandate in regard to sort of positioning those before going to opioids to prescribers, do you see the government playing a role in that at all? Well, that's already the, the standard of care, right? I mean, the, the standard of care really already is to try the non-pharmacologic first before pharmacologic and then the lower scheduled before the higher scheduled and that you know should include abuse deterrent before non-abuse deterrent. Uh, the federal government is prioritizing and funding the development of the uh, non-addictive uh, treatments for pain and opioid use disorder. Um, But uh, as it relates to a public relations campaign or provider education campaign on um, trying uh, uh, non-pharmacologic or or non-scheduled first, uh, I don't see any signs that that would be uh, something that the federal government would do, but it's certainly something that I think uh, could be beneficial as these additional treatments come to market.
2: I receive uh, letters from insurance companies, calls from pharmacies, saying that I write too many prescriptions. But I write for just a few pills, maybe a week to two weeks' worth, and then I reevaluate the patient, and I try to keep the milligram dosage down. We need to talk in terms of number of pills and milligram dosage and not the number of prescriptions. I can write five, let's say, for 120 pills, five prescriptions, whereas this guy over here is writing 280, one. I'm in trouble. He's not. So right. in discussing these things, don't dwell on the number of prescriptions. It should be the number of pills and the
0: milligram dosage. Well, I, w- I wouldn't even say it should um, relate to the number of uh, pills or doses without reference to what the individual patient circumstances are also. Well, uh, yes, that and that's that's the The, the, topic the problem of these prosecutors sending letters to prescribers without knowing why they are outside of the... Uh, you know, the, the normal uh, prescribing numbers.
2: Well, it's prosecutors and insurance companies that are directing our care. That's right.
0: That's a great question. Whether there is a resource to know which attorneys have experience at pushing back against uh, the um, uh, medical boards or the um, law enforcement. And I don't know of such a resource. It would be valuable. But what uh, I do know is that if you look at just news in your area, I don't know what region you're in, but if you look, you can typically find the news stories of the um, prescribers who were, Tried and actually found not guilty, right? And then go to their law firm. Uh, that you know, that's the law firm. Even even if they, you know, the, the issue is that you know you've you've got the um, white collar defense firms that are succeeding in litigation. And they would be helpful if you get to that point, but they are not the compliance firm. So you need to make sure that if you're you know, on the front end making sure that you're uh, adherent to the best practices and the standard of care, you'd go to a healthcare law firm for that. But if you want to have in place, as I recommend, always have in place like a 911 number for a white-collar criminal defense attorney, find someone locally you should be able to, from the news media, who's won uh, a defense case uh, of, of that nature. Yes? Yes. So it's a a big question as to how we learn from this experience and not continue to go through the the cycle of, uh, you know, really what has been the uh, drug policy and sort of the history of uh, drug use across human nature and certainly the United States. And I think ultimately we're going to get to a point where uh, we have to focus on demand reduction, right? And so we're going to have to look at those social determinants of health and diseases of despair as it relates to uh, stopping the initiation of problematic substance use, but then also where all of this is going, and I think faster than many of us realize, is on one side we've got to push for illicit substance legalization, like uh, we see the states that have uh, legalized uh, cannabis, and then we see the movement now related to mushrooms. Um, And then what we see then as the tightening of restrictions on controlled uh, medications. Uh, And so that's going to come to a head and collide, and we're going to have to figure out, how we can be more permissive on one side while we're trying to be more restrictive on the other side. And I think it's going to result in a a fundamental revisiting of drug policy. Uh, For that to happen, I think we're going to have to reach a point where the older, uh, more um, conventional generation uh, is no longer as active in politics and in voting, frankly. Um, But I do think that uh, the younger generations, probably starting with, with Generation X, are going to have to realize, as a matter of practicality, that drug policy needs to be revisited. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we've, uh, we've crossed our time. I'm available if you'd like to speak afterward. Thank you all for being here, and have a great rest of